it. So I think as teachers, I think we sometimes have some angst or anxiety these days because we're trying to avoid the sort of everyone gets a trophy phenomenon. Um, but I do think we also have to remember that when things are new and nascent, you treat it differently than when something's developed and further along. When something's yeah. further along, that's when you want to give you know, feedback and push and do that. But early on, that nurturing is actually incredibly important. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start It Up podcast. Today, I have on Alan Gannett. He is the author of the book, The Creative Curve. And Alan is one of those guys that is ultra positive. I had connected with him on LinkedIn. He's been just doing some really cool short form videos. I saw him with Daniel Pink not too long ago and uh, reached out to him and then uh, was just blessed to have him on the show. So I know you're going to enjoy this one. His insights are, are real and raw, and I, I highly recommend that you, you check out the book. Um, I think you're sincerely going to enjoy this. All right, so let's get right into it. Alan Gannett. All right, now I am pleased to have on Alan Gannett. He is the author of the new book, The Creative Curve. Alan, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I want to dig right in. One, there's all of a sudden this agreement that we need to start focusing a little bit more on creativity and innovation. What made you go, you know what, I need to get all these things and put them into a book? What what was that spark? Yeah, so for me, you know, my sort of day job for a long time was running a marketing analytics company. And I think when you think analytics and you think data, you don't think creativity. What was so interesting was two things. I was seeing at the same time these patterns in marketing data where it turns out that the stories and the themes and the things that resonate with people are much more uh, predictable and patterned than you might expect. And the other side, I was seeing this deep creative insecurity where when I would talk to marketers, even at these big brands, even these super successful marketers, this creative insecurity came out where they'd say things like, oh, I'm not that creative, or that's just not me, or I need to hire an agency for that. And when I realized, I started looking at a wider and wider set of people, was that actually like, geez, it seems like everyone's so insecure about creativity. I had always grown up with a notion that creativity is a learned skill, and it took me to my adulthood to realize that this is a minority opinion and that most people view creativity as this sort of innate um, you know, result of divine intervention. And so I'm a big, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still uh, a guy from New Jersey deep down at heart. And so I get frustrated. And I was just getting frustrated, you know, just hearing people limit themselves, hearing this sort of self-talk that people give themselves about creativity. And I think when we're entering an age with AI and automation and all this stuff, your creativity ultimately is the skill of the future from a career perspective, from a life perspective. And so the fact that people were limiting themselves for bad reasons uh, got me going. I cannot scream amen loud enough. (laughs) No, I I totally agree. So I, as you know, in the class, I work with 16 to 18 year olds. And that's the hardest thing is that uh, getting girls to my class has been tough because sometimes mm. rumor gets out that it's a, it's a, a techie course or, mm. uh, you know, that, that it's kind of scary or, oh, or people are born creative. And what they eventually find out is, is that it's a culture. And once you assimilate with yourself in that culture, all of a sudden, wham, bam, you're creative. You're, you're because you're around that. It's almost like by osmosis, but taking them to that journey is the hard part. I have it a little bit easier in the sense that I can put four walls around you and corral you. But I agree, <laughs> you're looking at people from all over, and, and, and I know it's harder to teach the old adult new tricks, 
So I totally feel the, well, I'll, I'll hire somebody to be the creative out there when you can be. So I guess step one is, how, how did you get them to acknowledge or take a look at the book of yes, you can kind of thing? Yeah. So the book is split up into two halves. So the first half of the book is sort of um, making the case, and I would say, I would argue proving that creativity can be learned. And the second half is basically teaching you um, how to learn it. And so the, for the first half of the book, what I did is I interviewed basically all of the living, leading academics in the field of creativity, whether that's across sort of psychology, neuroscience, sociology, which spends a lot of time on creativity. We'll talk more about that because people underestimate how much of a social construct creativity is. And then um, the back half of the book was interviewing creative achievers. So I interviewed you know, Oscar winners like Pasek and Paul, who did Dear Evan Hansen and La La Land. I interviewed uh, David Rubenstein, The Billionaire, Nina Jacobson, the producer behind Crazy Rich Asians, The Hunger Games, and American Crime Story. Um, you know, Ted Sarandos, Chief Compound Officer of Netflix, Brenda Chapman, the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Animated Film. And you know, from those interviews, I teased out um, what were the consistent things I found that they did to enhance their creativity? I explained the science of why those things work. And so for the first half of the book and the sort of the myth busting part of the book, you know, there's a few different things that I think are important if you're going to summarize it. I think one is that we have an immense amount of science showing us that our brain is incredibly good at adapting to things. We also have an immense amount of research showing us that compounding advantage has a huge and wonderful effect on people's abilities. And so what you find when you look at a lot of the research around talent, what you find is that there's actually pretty good academic consensus that really what we think of as natural born talent tends to be either things that are misattributed. So like, you know, a kid was playing softball as a kid with their dad, and then they start running track in high school. And they're like, wow, he's so good at sprinting. Yeah, because he was running around his backyard as a kid for five years. or what it is is the result of long amounts of time of working on something and your brain adapting. So they've done all these fascinating studies around neuroplasticity where they find um, that you can actually form permanent changes to your brain structures based on the activity you do. Your brain is really like a muscle. And so the result is what that shows is on the talent side. So there's a lot of consensus that the idea of talent is overrated, that you have the ability to learn anything. Now, okay, that's interesting. The other thing, though, that's really interesting when you look at creativity is that it feels almost lucky, right? It feels sort of like, whoa, where did that come from? We talk about lightning bolts and aha moments and all this stuff. The thing which is so interesting when you look at sociology is that creativity doesn't exist in a vacuum. Creativity exists within the time and space um, that it is made. Because when you think about creativity, creativity is not just technical skill. It is not just talent. See, I can throw paint on a canvas and maybe I learned very well how to throw paint on a canvas, but no matter how elegantly I do it, because that has been done before, it is no longer creative. So creativity is not productivity. It's not just creating something novel. Creativity, creativity is about creating something that is both novel and perceived as valuable by culture. Now, because of that second part, what that means is that really creativity is this social phenomenon where ideas have to get heard by the public or a group of the public. They have to be acknowledged and recognized as creative. And so you have this whole interesting social dynamic that results in the fact that creativity you often see happens in certain cities, 
right? Where there's more likely ability to have a transference of new skills. There's more likely ability to get mentors and people who are going to promote you and lend you their reputation. Uh, it's also, you find that creativity tends to happen in rich cultures as in monetarily rich. You know, we talk about um, the, uh, you know, the golden age and the Italian Renaissance, all these things, but that was also an economic Renaissance. That was a period of time where merchants were making huge amounts of money and that wealth that they then had, they wanted to spend, they wanted to live like Kings and Popes. So they started buying all this art and changed the art market. And so when you start looking at creativity a little bit closer, what you really find is this really fascinating social phenomenon. And as a result, what that means to us is that we can actually dissect it. We can understand it and we can ultimately learn about it. <laughs> There's so much to unpack there. And <laughs> uh, I love some of the science behind that. So if you were working with, let's just say, oh, I don't know, 16 to 18 year olds, <laughs> that first step and that first fear into, but I'm just not that creative. What are some exercises that you have seen that really start get the juices flowing? Yeah, this is a great question. So I feel like, you know, I am definitely too young to be a parent right now, but at some point I feel like it's, I would want to write a parenting book because so much of the creativity problems uh -huh. start in childhood. And I do think education system, you know, we still have an education system, which is preparing kids for a sort of 1980s, 1970s economy. And, you know, in the At future best. economy, at best, right. in a future economy where, you know, a lot of white collar jobs will be automated, you know, creativity really should be the sort of foundation, I think, of education. And, um, you know, I think there's a couple things. I think one is that, you know, if you, if there's, um, you know, students who are already, you know, full of self-doubt, which I think is very common by the end of high school, I think understanding and walking back and having those discussions, and this is what I do when I'm coaching people at work, you know, why are you telling yourself that story, right? What have you heard before? Who's told you that? Starting to understand that context. I think in the same way like a therapist would, you can only really change something once you understand it. And it's sort of been said. I think that's one. I think the second thing, and this is really, really important. The second thing is that you have to give, I think, a lot more positive feedback than feels normal or comfortable. And this is one of those areas where I don't mean this is like millennials, like everyone get a trophy. What I mean is that what you find when you look at these sort of natural talents, quote unquote, you tend to find one of two things. You tend to find that they either come from very broken homes, and there's a few flavors of that. Like one is that the creative outlet becomes an escape. The other is they have sort of a tiger parent who's like forcing them to do something and has conditional love. That's like Mozart, for example. Or you have these very, very, very well-adjusted parents who early on are very deeply encouraging. You know, little Johnny or little Sally is does their first you know, art project. And of course it sucks because, you know, they're little. And even for that reason, they're still, they hang out in the refrigerator, they lavish praise, they lavish love. And, you know, little Johnny and little Sally get that warm feeling inside. They want to do it again. And so they start painting again. And they do it again and again. And wow, by the time they're seven, they've already been painting for two years. They're actually getting kind of good. And then now all these other people are recognizing their talent. And now all of a sudden they're going to do more and more and more. And you get this positive feedback loop. So I think the thing that's really important as teachers is how do you nurture that early on? Um, and I always think about this even with myself where, um, you know, I wrote a book. Um, you know, I have lots of complaints about the book, but people seem to like it as good reviews. Um, but I remember, you know, when I was in high school, I had one teacher 
who, you know, encouraged me and told me, you know, to write more. And um, I, up until that point, didn't have a lot of confidence in writing. I had, you know, no one telling me like, wow, you're an amazing writer or anything. And I don't think I probably was amazing. And that's the important thing, right? It was that she believed in me and my ability to develop. And um, you know, since then, I've wrote in you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words across books, articles, um, college, all this stuff. Um, and I've developed an ability to write, write you know, at least decently. And you know, that would not have happened if I didn't have people encouraging me early on, even when I wasn't good. So I think as teachers, I think we sometimes have some angst or anxiety these days because we're trying to avoid the sort of everyone gets a trophy phenomenon. Um, but I do think we also have to remember that when things are new and nascent, you treat it differently than when something's developed and further along. When something's yeah. further along, that's when you want to give you know, feedback and push and do that. But early on, that nurturing is actually incredibly important. Let me let me go backwards and say, A, I totally agree. Having You start off by saying, have conversations. I know the first thing I do with our innovation open source learning class is the first couple of days, along the same lines you're saying it, where are we headed? Heck, a lot of mm. times I just, I just enjoy talking to teachers and say, what is the purpose of school? Why is this building here? <laughs> and like, we've lost sight of that. It's not to memorize mm. things so to never use. It's not, yeah, it's to, not to take the SAT test. test. Exactly. Yeah. We're friends now. <laughs> and so it's, it's to prepare them for the future. And I'm like, great. What's the future look like? You know, what things do we know are fundamentally going away? Mm. Can, can, can we all agree that the taxi cab driver and the truck driver is going to go away because of automated driving? Okay, great. What about, what about checkout lanes? Yeah, I already see that happening. What about, yeah. what about, what about? And then all of a sudden they start saying, okay, okay, okay. I'm getting a grasp of where we're headed on the future. You may not know everything, but you're getting that, that point that you made that creativity is the thing. That if it can be automated, it will be automated. Been oh, and you're seeing this now with even white collar jobs just trying to see these machine yes. learning algorithms that automate a lot of accounting. Yes. Or like oh. e-discovery and legal is replacing lawyer jobs. Surgery. Like, yeah. Surgery. <laughs> the algorithms, like music algorithms, songs are creating their own songs. And so we're, we're in this scary time. So where the, where the conversation ends is, so creativity and new ideas are the new currency. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Second thing you said, which I love is just press publish. And by just mm. pressing publish, you're, you're sharing your journey to the world. And I dig that because like case in point, I always remember when my, my daughter, when she was like 11, asked to start her own YouTube channel. And the first mm. thing she got was trolls. And I thank God for those trolls. Mm. Because when they told her this video sucks, I said, okay, Ava, do they suck? And she's like, well, I like it. I'm like, okay, click on their profile. How many videos have they done? <laughs> well, none. Awesome. You're going to take guff from somebody's never produced? And then someone would say, your lighting could be better. Ava, could your lighting be better? Yeah, I guess so. What are you going to do? Put a lamp behind the camera next time. Great. That, that's innovation. That's growth. That's creativity. Totally. You heard back. No, I'd like it if people on the internet were a little bit nicer. However, in this, in the Wetrick family, we teach you how to produce, not just consume. And if you get feedback, not everybody's going to be a fan. So mm. I, I love that. I loved your first two answers because that's exactly not to say I'm looking for confirmation bias. Jeez, we're both fans of Van Pagan here and all that. But um, no, I, I, I like that building a culture and those cultures start by just like, where are we? Let's have this conversation for sure. And I, and I mean, you all, we, we know the lingo that's used. Like you hear in high schools, I think a lot, there's this thing like, oh, like she's going to get an English degree. Like she can become a barista. Like there's this sort of like, I think in America, since we've, 
Um, we really do have this culture of sort of capitalism as being sort of the social currency, right? We sort of have this reverence for rich people, even like almost no matter how they made money, almost. Um, I think as a result, we've sort of like geared our education system towards like how do we um, get kids, you know, high paying jobs. And the result has been, well, traditionally it's been, okay, well, like let's, it's not creativity. It's about uh, sort of rote high skill labor, right? Lawyers, accountants, um, doctors, blah, blah, blah. And so that is the, but that is the economy of the past. And now in the future, you're going to see an increasing amount of Fortune 500 CEOs with liberal arts degrees. You're going to see that the people who are designing the products of the future, they're ultimately people who are um, quite creative in their thinking. They are willing to take risks. They're willing to do these things. And so we're going through this big reshuffling. And it's going to be so fascinating to see. But I really think that, you know, the sort of K-12 education system is like a pivotal part of that reshuffle. And if we want to prepare students for the future, we have to acknowledge that. And um, we can't you know, we can't let them go to college thinking, well, if I just get a good degree and become a lawyer, I'm going to have a good job forever. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's not true anymore. Well, because the like, foundations you're talking about are in exact direct opposition. Don't exactly. take a risk. Don't you mess up. Don't you get an F. Meanwhile, the, the, what you know, take risks, fail early, fail often. They're 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 not. They're not aligning. And so I think I agree with you. So for education to get its collected head out of its butt, you have to say, okay, (laughs) we need to start fostering these things. And then ironically enough, even if the parents like it's the parents now. Yeah. Like uh, I'll get, I'll get sometimes more feedback from the schools willing to try because I do a decent amount of professional development for other schools as well. Also the teachers buy in and then the parents are like, wait, you're wanting them to take a risk. Uh Uh-uh. I'm my kid. If my kids get a B, in a non-weighted class, forget it. And but even just what you said to me, it's so amazing because like now I'm having flashbacks to high school. It's like a weighted <laughs> class, and it's like all this stuff. It's like Jesus. Like you know, I you know started a company that I ran. You know, six years into it, we merged with another company where I'm at now, and you know, you know, we were 55 people. So I, you know, as a 20 something, I managed 55 people. And let me tell you, I have never had anyone ask me about my high school GPA. Like it is just so not, and like what people do want to know and they want to come work with you or partner with you is they want to get a sense of your ability to think, your ability to take risks, your ability to be open to new ideas. And so I I think we've just, we've gone sort of far off the deep end on this stuff. Yeah, I agree. And, and for that matter, I think of it this way. Well, heck, I remember having a uh, conversation with uh, Tom Bilyeu. He started Quest Nutrition. What kind of educational background does he have in nutrition? None. None. Hire people student. at it. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so you're, you're right. Like you've, you've got in one instance, people saying, you know, what's your resume and the rest of the world not necessarily caring. Uh, the other thing I really dig about you and, I, and actually how I came to, to come across you and your work is that you're doing, <clears throat> you're doing awesome little, I almost want to call them short attention span theater, right? So <laughs> I think I think Vine really hurt us in some ways, but I, I, I like the fact that you're doing like two minute, really great videos on LinkedIn. Tell me, tell me when did you start doing that and, and your why? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I had just finished the manuscript, um, the first draft of the manuscript for the book, and the book is all about timing and sort of like social dynamics, right? And a big part of the book is that, you know, you want to be part of trends when they're on an upswing and sort of how to identify that. And so at the same time, I saw that LinkedIn 
was launching this private beta video. And I was like, well, videos work on every other channel. LinkedIn's a great place because it's so educational focused. Like this is going to work. Um, and so I uh, had been thinking about it a lot. And this is like a bizarre story I'm about to tell you, by the way. Um, and so I was like thinking about it a lot. And I had a dream one night that I was at a rooftop bar and I was talking, for some reason it was Jeff Bezos, even though it should have been Jeff Wiener. Like I had some sort of weird cognitive switch, but I was talking to the CEO of LinkedIn, who my dream was Jeff Bezos. It was very strange. And um, I like asked him for access to LinkedIn video and he said, yes. And so the next morning I woke up and I was like, that was ridiculous. The thought one, thought two, I bet if I post that on LinkedIn, um, Jeff Wiener will see it and give me access to LinkedIn video. And so I post on LinkedIn. I said Jeff Wiener instead of Jeff Bezos because that was too complicated. Um, and lo and behold, like kind of went viral. And then Jeff Wiener commented on it. Then it went super viral and he gave me video access. So I had video access when only like 150 people had it. And for me, it was like, you know, what I realized is that sort of my um, sort of unique advantage is that I am part of my job is I'm constantly meeting people and I'm meeting interesting people who have you know, stuff to share with the world. Um, and I knew that short videos were, you know, sort of the future. And so I just said, Hey, why don't at the end of my lunch meetings, why don't I just ask people if we can do a video? And so that's how it started. And I, you know, my goal is to do, you know, two a week. I've done, you know, probably over a hundred videos now. And they've got a total of about 4 million views and it's been super crazy. I mean, it's just like, it's been awesome to meet people and hear that like they had a positive impact because they learned something. And, you know, it's a type of thing where like doesn't take much time at all. Like I literally record them on my iPhone. Yeah. I use a caption service and I upload them. Like that is the entire video production. The, the like camera equipment is my arm and I've luckily have long arms, but like a selfie stick would work too. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's a good lesson in the importance of timing more than technical quality, right? Cause the videos are not well-produced. They're often poorly lit, uh, but people really, really like them and they really resonate. And, yeah. um, and so it's been a super fun experience. No, I agree. A matter of fact, if you're listening to this thinking, maybe I should, you know, be on LinkedIn. Yes, you should. Matter of fact, <laughs> I, I, it has, it has been a bonanza for some of our students, uh, proud the organic man. reach is crazy oh, these it's, days. right it's it's everything um and and our students are starting to find that you know the class again is called innovation and open source learning well if some kid wants to say hey i want to learn start building a, a blockchain ledger i'm not your guy but we yeah. put out a request on linkedin and poof there it is and oh, some right. of our students are getting thousands of hits on their video um I say this lovingly and, and only because, you know, she's my student, but she's also my daughter. My student, <laughs> my student slash daughter got invited to speak out in Geneva at the UN uh, World Economic Forum because she was talking about female entrepreneurialism. That's amazing. And she started to trend so much on LinkedIn. People are like, so somebody there saw it. She's like, hey, we need you for you to, to you know, be our guest. And, <laughs> I know. amazing. Because, because they have a, a two-minute LinkedIn video. It's crazy. And, and this is the thing, though, that's it's such a great example, because um, this is one of those things where I think oftentimes one of the cognitive biases we have that's not helpful is we think the things that are popular today will be the things that are popular tomorrow. Right. And one of the things that, you know, I think is really important. So if you're a student or you teach students, that it's important to sort of teach and sort of absorb is that really you want to think about things on a first principle level. Right. So like LinkedIn, like a year and a half ago, like now there's recognition that like LinkedIn's actually a good organic reach platform. A year and a half ago, people made fun of LinkedIn so much. Like it was like, 
you know, no one used it. It was not cool. And it's like, if you, but if you've been on LinkedIn, if you read the articles about the stats, like you knew there was a ton of people on it. They were active. You know, they had half a billion active users. And so you could, like, this was not a hard thing to foresee. This was not difficult, right? What it takes though, is being willing to put away this sort of cultural biases and the cultural conditioning and say, okay, on first principle, this should work well. Now, this also has the opposite effect when it comes to creativity, where oftentimes people take things that are already popular, and because they assume they'll continue to be popular, they create some variation of that, right? So you saw this obviously a few years ago with Daily Deals. So Groupon and Living Social come out, do really well. Literally like every entrepreneur or fresh MBA starts some variation of a Daily Deal company. They all fail, all of them, because like, inherently the fact that it's popular sort of means someone already took that space. And so with LinkedIn, it's so funny because you know, people will email me and ask me about like doing an interview show and like how to set it up. And I'm just like, I think that time is coming on. Like there's me and a whole bunch of other people who like a year ago started doing them. And um, you know, if you don't have that unique twist at this point, like it's not going to work. And so that is, I think one of the fundamental things that people get wrong with creativity. It's, um, they, they, they overestimate the sort of uh, popularity, longevity of things or how long things will stay on a high and um, you can do it at your own peril. That's a great story. I, it, at your own peril, I, I like as well. Because like if you're, and heck, even, even the point you're making, if you're trying things and being transparent about it, you're winning. Totally. You're, totally. you're just winning. And, 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 and even though sometimes I, I get a little bit queasy on the hustle and grind porn, <laughs> uh, but but that that the whole Gary V model of uh, you know just document what you're doing. If you're screwing up, acknowledge it that the fact you're screwing up and that you're adapting. That lets people know that you're working towards something bigger. And especially if you're 15, 16, 17 years old, I, I think totally. what the world expects out of them is duck face selfies and f this and f that and everything. <laughs> if you're 17 and you're like, yo. I'm working on a community event to tie people together. There is a collective line to get to know that kid. Totally. And that's why I'm, I'm wanting them to, to connect with people like yourself. They're open sourcing their learning and they have such a huge advantage at their age. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, it's, I mean, it is really just incredible. And you know, one of the things that um, I think is important with all the sort of like um, you know, hustle porn and all that kind of stuff is, I think I think if you look at Gary Vee as sort of um, someone who's driving a point of view and sort of pulling rather than saying viewing him as dogmatic, I think it's very helpful because you know, I think one of the points he's making generally that's really important is that um, a lot of people are just inherently sort of lazy, right? Like just inherently we have this is the whole idea of procrastination, inertia, not following up, like you know, everyone's had the experience where like someone doesn't respond to me that would take 20 seconds to respond to. Like, what is that? Right. And so I think his point, um, which to me, I interpret as if you show up, do the work, say what you're going to do, right. You are at a huge advantage from everyone else. And none of that is talent. None of that is skills, which take years and years to nurture. You just have to do it. And so I think when you look at him from that lens, I think, I think it's like, it's spot on. I think when he talks about like, you know, never sleeping and blah, blah, blah. I think like, I tend to think like, well, people are different, right? So like, it's great that you can't sleep, but like, if I don't sleep, like I'm not very productive. So yeah. like, great job. Good for you, Gary. Right. Um, but I, I, what I tend to take from that more is like, you should just be self-aware 
and do the maximum that you are able to do. And so for me, that means like, you know, I work like, you know, 55 hours, 60 hours a week. I don't work 80. <laughs> like, um, and that's me and that's what's sustainable. And that also makes me happy, which is sort of the point of it all. Right. Um, and so, and so I think, I think, I think there's some meta points that are, that are good there. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes I, I, I crave more nuance from him, but I think it's overall a net positive. Yeah. Well, and, and like you're saying before, just being enthusiastic about what you do is also just, <laughs> it's totally. such a huge thing. And, and, I, and I will say, I don't like to throw the whole millennial under the bus kind of thing. One, because I think that no other generation had the rug pulled out quicker. Totally. Um, and, and I look at myself in the mirror and say, I'm, I'm to blame on that. The educational system has always and forever said, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, get through this, go to a really good college, and then everything will work out. And then all of a sudden, the world changed. We weren't looking for the SAT memorizer. Suddenly, the, the jobs they were wanting to get and occupy are either going to be automated or are. So I feel bad for them. However, in saying all that, sometimes the sense of, I want it now. I can binge watch things now. I can have everything I want now. It takes time. And when you want it now and you cross your arms and you hold your breath, that lack of enthusiasm is <laughs> trying to work on that a little too. I think, I think the biggest advantage that um, millennials and Gen Z have, so I'm a millennial, is that I think they fundamentally understand, um, we fundamentally understand the value of audience. And you know, growing up in sort of a social media generation, um, we learned sort of the lessons about building audience, the power of audience, the dangers of audience. And I think that is when you think about the next 100 years and you think about how fragmented attention is, anyone who is able to um, you know, aggregate attention has a skill that's very valuable. And, you know, you're seeing now a lot of people where, you know, they start as an influencer, but then they build brands after they've already built the audience, like the audience is coming first. And I think that is something that I very much look up to, especially the generation one, one younger than me, they're even, they're amazing at it, right? Like I know yeah. uh, these kids who start meme pages, they get millions and millions of followers and they just so, they understand it, they understand the zeitgeist, they understand how to get other pages to shout them out and do all this stuff. And, um, you know, I think that is, that is, a, that is a real skill and talent. And I think um, if you're if you're you know a younger person and you're watching and you're listening, um, I think you should feel very self assured that like that skill is going to be very useful throughout your entire career. I will agree with an asterisk. Um, a, I totally agree. Gen Z seems to be a little bit more entrepreneurial in that sense. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, totally. And, I agree. And, and and millennials, hmm, I always kind of laugh when I hear, uh, and I'm not making fun. But dudes, <laughs> dudes that call in on, ta- uh, on on sports talk radio, you know what the Saints should do tonight? They're all experts on how to run a four three defense. They're all experts on on what they did wrong in the two minute. I think that you're right. There's a lot of millennials that know the process of identifying an audience. They're just not doing it, and and so or or if they are, their channel is going to be just like Casey's. Yes. They're going to be just like Logan Paul. So you have a ton of prank crap videos when you could be original. So they're like, hey, there's a huge audience here to act inappropriately and do pranks. (laughs) Okay. The guys that were early to that are cashing in. How many are getting 10 hits? 
the rest of them. So you hit them? you hit something you hit something that I think is just so important. Um, and I talk about this in the book is that you know one of the things that we sort of misunderstand is trends where we view them we're like oh it's like this magical mystical thing like how do they work like and again this is the whole thing where like oh they're doing what's popular now themselves and it's not working. And what you find when scientists do these studies, what they find at an individual level, a group level, and a population level, the ideas that people like or that groups like or that take off within populations are ideas that are actually a blend of the familiar and the novel. They're not ideas that are entirely familiar, and they're not ideas that are entirely novel. So you think about like Star Wars. It was a Western in space. You think about, you know, the iPad was an iPhone without a phone. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone, right? What you actually find is that big ideas tend to take something old and add a new twist. Think about, you know, with Tide detergent and the Tide pen or, oh, God forbid, the Tide pods. And what you find is that oftentimes as creatives, we do one of two things. We either create something that's so familiar because we think, oh, well, that will work. Like we do, like, here's a want to be Casey Neistat or um, and I interviewed him for the book by the way and it's really interesting because well that's a whole different story but um, and then or we do something that's radically novel where we're like I'm gonna do something so crazy and avant-garde and everyone's like ah this kind of freaks me out and so the reasons why we like this blend of familiarity and novelty is that as humans we our brain has these two tasks which are very important one of them is our brain is trying to constantly keep us safe and we've learned that familiarity tends to mean that something's safe. So think about, you know, if there's like in your grandmother's house, there's in the basement this like creepy door, like really creepy. Well, if you were in a stranger's house and you saw that creepy door, it'd be kind of scary. In your grandma's house, you're like, eh, it's just a weird old door. Like I'm going to go inside and get the, you know, get whatever's behind it, right? And so merely, even though something is physically the same, our familiarity with it changes our perception of it quite substantially. Now, on the other side, where it gets interesting, is that we also have this sort of exploratory urge that's focused around novelty, where our brain is trying to find new sources of food, pleasure, reward. And so we seek out things that are novel. So that's interesting because that is obviously contradictory, right? We seek out familiarity. We also seek out novelty. But what it is, is that we're actually looking for things that are familiar enough to feel safe enough but yet still novel enough to be interesting and new. And so when you see new ideas that take off, they tend to be a blend of those two things. I mean, music is such a great example with how much sampling that goes on, right? It's all about how do you create a little bit of nostalgia? Um, and so I think that's one of those things that, you know, if you're trying to create, you have to do something that's a little bit different. You have to do something that's a little bit new. Um, like I always give the recommendation for LinkedIn, which people haven't done yet, but I know would do well. I just don't have the time or interest to do it, which is like if someone did MTV Cribs, but for offices on LinkedIn, it would do phenomenal, right? And some like interior office design firm should be doing that. Like that would be great content marketing but versus like if they did a show, like we're interviewing other interior designers, like yawn, I'm bored, right? And so that, that nuance, that combination, that ability to blend the old and the new, that is what's so, so important when it comes to creativity. Uh, no, cool. Alan, I appreciate it. Uh, one, uh, your insights are refreshing because I, I am in lockstep with you. And, and uh, there is this, I don't want to call it, I will call it a crisis of, uh, you know, preparing, preparing people and students for what's next and, and your book and uh, even your cool two-minute videos are, are um, pointing the people in that direction. Speaking of which, tell everybody 
uh, where you can find the book, obviously Amazon, but you know, also the LinkedIn, everything else we can find yet. Yeah. So um, for the book, Amazon, all stores, thecreativecurve.com. Um, you can check out my website, allen.xyz for links to all my social, my newsletter, all that good stuff. And Alan is spelled the old fashioned way, A-L-L-E-N. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alan. And again, I will be passing along this awesome information to my students. If you guys have any questions for him, he gave you all the deets. He is a responsive guy. And I seriously highly recommend you follow him on LinkedIn because I'm telling you, you're just going to love these short form videos. They're, they're great uh, to, to both take in and then follow up on if you have any questions for him. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks, bud.